The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Ladies, you heard all the announcements uh, about women's events coming up. Classic ladies this week, new Bible studies on Thursdays, uh, opportunities down the road to, for Fresh Grounded Faith, tickets on sale in the lobby following this, impact churchwide event. We need uh, lots of homes with our kids. And then this past week, Hope Pregnancy Center had a uh, banquet, fundraising banquet. TBC has donated 35 baskets, uh, gift baskets from small groups at TBC. Just through those baskets alone, 5,500 bucks was raised. Much more money was raised at the banquet, but just from you and your generosity here in the body, that happened. So praise God and thank you for those who are generous. Let's thank the folks who were part of that and their generosity towards that ministry. We have called our study of Daniel cultures on collision because we see a collision of the culture of Daniel's time with the collision of the culture of our time. We're gonna be wrapping up our study the next few weeks and uh, as we come today, we look at a message I've entitled The Invisible War. Daniel chapter 10, verse one. In the third year, Cyrus, king of Persia, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict but he understood the message and he had an understanding of the vision. Father, as we look at this introduction to that vision, I pray that you will help us to see, know, and understand the truth that we find in it. And Father, as we do that, I pray that uh, you will about yourself and teach us how to walk in your grace. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are willing to follow. Make clear your scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Fear. Fear. Have you encountered that beast recently? You know, fear creeps in by many, many doors. Chuck Swindoll wrote a little essay a number of years ago about fear, and he says, fear. It creeps into the, the doors of our life by a dozen different ways. There's fear of failure, fear of heights, fear of crowds, fear of disease, fear of rejection, fear of loneliness, fear of unemployment, fear of what others are saying about us, fear that they're not talking about us. Fear of moving away, fear of staying. There's a fear of the kids growing up, the fear of the kids not growing up. It seems like in our day and age, we're surrounded by fear. Can you relate to that? I mean, some of us have phobias. Bev cannot even watch a television program where a snake comes on the TV. She turns her head and screams like a little girl. I, I mean, she's got a, a deep phobia of snakes. And uh, you know, we all have different things that we fear in life. Maybe you remember the story I used it before of Louis Armstrong. Maybe I like it because it took place in South Louisiana. When Louis Armstrong was a young boy growing up in South Louisiana, he lived with his aunt on a bayou. If you don't know what a bayou is, it's kind of like a creek, but bigger and uh, has all kinds of stuff in it. He grew up with uh, his aunt Hattie, as he grew up with, not a grandmother, but his aunt, and they did not have running water in their cabin. So one day, he, she, she sent Louis to gather some water in a bucket to come back and use it in the cabin. When he got ready to stick, to stick the pail in the water, he got down there and the alligator popped its head up. He threw the pail down on the ground and he ran back to the cabin. He was screaming and uh, his aunt told him he had to go back, he had to get the pail, he had to fetch the water because they needed it. She said, that alligator Louis is just as scared as you are of it. He said, Aunt, if that's the case, then that bayou ain't fit to drink the water out of. <laughs> Max Licato tells that story and then he finishes it up this way. He says, alligators lurk in our bayous too. And we see them, we react. 
We fear rejection, so we follow the crowd. We fear not fitting in, so we take drugs. We fear standing out, so we wear what everyone else wears. We fear blending in, so we wear what no one else wears. We fear sleeping alone, so we sleep with anyone. We fear not being loved, so we search for love in all the wrong places. Probably make a good song, searching for love in all the wrong places. Fear. Fear paralyzes, fear kills, fear destroys. Fear. Well, this is a chapter about fear. Daniel's scared to death. If you look at this chapter, there's one thing that stands out. Whatever happens to Daniel in this chapter, he's afraid. Look at verse 8. I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet there was no strength left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly gray, and I retained no strength. Then in verse 9, but I heard the sound of his words. As soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Look at verse 10. A, whole, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and on my knees. Then in verse 12, don't be afraid. Then in verse 19, don't be afraid. Then you back up to uh, verse 18, and it says, uh, then this human touched me again and gave me strength. So over and over in this chapter, Daniel's scared. Why is Daniel, why is Daniel shaking in his sandals and trembling in his tunic? tunic? Why? What happens in this chapter? And when you have fears or worry or anxiety, what drives that? What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? What are you worried about when you walked in this room today? When we look at what happened to Daniel, it would be totally different than what most of us have experienced. In fact, what Daniel saw was this thing behind it. This is an artist rendering of what Daniel saw. A little vague, but we'll talk about the specifics in a minute. What Daniel was so afraid about is something you might call a visitation, a visit by an angel. He was visited by an angel. It was a very real visitation to Daniel. The setting of all this is found in verses 1, 2, and 3. Setting is quite interesting. And by the way, chapter 10 does not stand alone. Chapter 10 stands in conjunction with 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10 is the introduction to Daniel's vision. Chapter 11 is this broad panoramic view of Daniel's vision. And chapter 13 are words of comfort to Daniel. So we're, we're just going to look at the introduction this Sunday, and then we'll conclude our Daniel study by looking at chapters 11 and 12 in the next few weeks. So what's the setting? Well, we already see in verse 1, it's the third year of Cyrus, who's the king of Persia. So there's something significant in that. First of all, Cyrus is a new leader. We've been studying Daniel. We saw that one of the first great empires was the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians conquered the Israelis. They brought him back to Babylon in exile. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. Cyrus is the king of the Persians. So the Babylonians have been defeated. Cyrus is ruling for three years. We can actually put a date on that. The date is 536 BC. We know that Cyrus came into power three years earlier. So this is the third year of his rule. This is the fourth time in Daniel's, uh, the visions he's been given, he puts a date on it. 536 BC is the exact date that he has this dream. And so that's that's the time frame. Now, the significant thing about that is this. When Cyrus came to rule, he began to allow the Jews to return to Israel. So Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. The Babylonians have taken the the Israelis to Babylon. Cyrus rises to power with the media Persian Empire. And in his first year of ruling and reigning, he allows some of the Jews to begin to go back to Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine it had been an exciting time in the history of the nation. They get to go back, reestablish everything that's there. They can go back and reestablish the the temple and rebuild the temple and all those things. And so it's an exciting time. So one of the questions that begs to be asked and answered is why is Daniel still in Persia? Why is he still in Babylon. 
I mean, if some have gone back, why hasn't Daniel? I think for two reasons. The text doesn't tell us, but it, you, you can reason it out. Reason number one, Daniel's old. I mean, Daniel is probably in his mid-80s. That's the age of my parents sitting down here. If you told my mom and dad they had to go repopulate back where they came from, they're going to say no. They'd rather be here. I mean, it's difficult to make that journey back. And uh, that in, in our day and age, it's a whole lot easier. But in that day and age, it was difficult. And Daniel's in his mid-80s, so he stays put. I think a greater reason, though, is the purpose. Daniel's in a position of power. In that position of power, Daniel would have the ability to enable some of the Jews to return, perhaps more of them. And so I submit to you, because of Daniel's position in the kingdom, he stayed back to enable others to go. Both of those are speculation. We don't know why. All we know is that Daniel's still in Persia when some have gone back. In this, he's mourning. If you look at verses two and three, in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks, for 21 days, and that's become a significant number. For three weeks, I've been mourning. Why is Daniel mourning? Well, I'm glad you asked. Daniel is mourning perhaps for a number of reasons, and the scriptures don't tell us, but let me submit to you some ideas. Daniel may have been mourning because everybody else was going back and he was not. Daniel may have been mourning because of the sin of the nation of Israel. In our last study when I was here, what we saw is that the nation had still not confessed and repented, and maybe Daniel was mourning the sinfulness of his people. Parallel to this section is the book of Ezra. So if you want to read about what's happening in the nation of Israel, read the book of Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, what we find out is when the Jews went back to Jerusalem, they sought to rebuild the temple, Ezra chapter 2, Ezra chapter 3. As they're seeking to rebuild the temple, they had great opposition. So maybe Daniel is mourning the fact that there's great opposition to those in rebuilding the temple. Once again, we don't know. But those are three reasons perhaps why he was. He wasn't able to go or perhaps the sinfulness of the people or because uh, of the temple not being rebuilt. Also in Ezra, it says that the, the, the glory of the temple being rebuilt would not be as great as the former glory of the temple. So maybe Daniel gets that word and the result of that is he's mourning. How did he mourn? Look at verse three. How do we know he's mourning? It says it in verse two. What did he do to mourn? He didn't eat any tasty food, didn't eat any meat, didn't drink any wine. I submit to you that if I could not eat tasty food, eat any meat or drink any wine, I'd be in mourning as well. <laughs> Nor did I use any ointment at all. You know, what does ointment have to do with mourning? Well, ointment was a symbol of joy. In the ancient Near East, you often bathe, you often cleanse yourself, and you, then you would anoint yourself after that. And so Daniel did, an, did not anoint himself. It's a symbol of joy throughout the scriptures. And Daniel, in a state of mourning, restricted his diet, restricted his drink, and restricted his joy. So Daniel's in a position of mourning. That's the setting we find ourselves in, then something happened. The question is, what happened? Well, what happened begins on the 4th. On the 21st day of the first month, Daniel's been in mourning. These three weeks, he's at the river Tigris. He lifts up his eyes, and behold, there's a man dressed in linen. His waist is girded with a pure gold ufaz. If you look behind me, you see kind of an image of that. It's a man with a linen tunic. Uh, his, his belt is, uh, is pure gold. His body, verse 6, is like beryl. Beryl was a fine stone. We read about that stone in Ezekiel 28. Uh, when it talks about Satan, we read about that stone in the New Jerusalem, actually. The foundation stones in, in New Jerusalem, beryl is included. So it's this beautiful stone. So this guy has a stone-like body. His face is like lightning. His eyes are like flaming torches, his arms are like bronze, and the sounds of his mouth are like the sounds of atonement. That is, uh, the, the, it, it's, it's a cacophony of noises. I mean, I, I had to look that word up to see what it was. It says sounds that are confusing. And so he, it's like when I go into a restaurant with high ceilings, when you wear hearing aids, all you hear is this cacophony of noise, and you can't really understand anybody around you. 
And Daniel has this vision, and it must have been so overwhelming to him, it scared him to death. I, I mean, if you look at what happened here, he says, that there was such a sense of great dread to those around me, they ran away, verse 7. And Daniel says, I was left alone. This is verse eight. And uh, it, it was like I was a dead man. He says, there's no color left in me. I've turned gray and I have no strength. And so Daniel is frightened when he sees this vision. <clears throat> Daniel is totally frightened when he sees this man on the screen behind me or whatever it looked like. The fear of Daniel. You ever been afraid like that? I mean, all of a sudden you're pulled over and there are lights behind you and you begin to get a little afraid. Or maybe you were like me, you got called to the principal's office one, two or six times in your school career for various things. And I remember walking into that principal's office, I'll never forget the worst episode of all that happened my senior year. I, I was the vice president of my senior class, the president of my senior class, a guy named Charlie, we were good friends. And, guy named Donald, and we decided uh, we weren't really interested in class on a particular morning, so we stopped at a place called Dunkin' Donuts. You remember those? And uh, so we just kind of came tardy after a couple of periods. And Mr. Donner was our principal. He somehow noticed that we were not there, and uh, he brought us into his office, and we had concocted the story that we had a flat tire. That's why we were late for class. I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever done that. And so we go in Mr. Donner's office and uh, we had told his secretary we, the reason we needed a tardy slip is because we were late because we had a flat tire. Mr. Donner brought us in his office. He put me in one corner of his office, Charlie in one corner, Don in the other corner. He handles a, a picture of a car and he said, boys, I want you to circle the tire that went flat. <laughs> I felt like Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. I mean, you've had that experience before. I mean, when, when, when the life is drained out of you, I mean, that's where Daniel was. I mean, he was in the midst of great fear, great anxiety. He saw this scary, impressive person, this angel that stood before him, and he didn't know what to do. He's filled with fear, filled with fear. It happens to all of us at different points. It happens at different times. If you look at uh, verses, uh, verses 8 and 9, the description of, of, of his responses, verse 9, he, he says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face. My face was in the ground. A couple of things I want to point out to you in this passage. First of all, to comfort Daniel, look at verse 10. Behold, a hand touched me. And then I, I want you to drop down to uh, verse 16. And he touched my lips. I want you to drop down to verse 18. He touched me again. So three times, verses 10, verse 16, verse 18, this angel touches Daniel to bring him comfort. I mean, when you're filled with fear, if you're in the midst of some place, you're filled with fear, and somebody comes along and hugs you or, or touches you, you, you draw comfort from that. And, and that's what this angel does. It's amazing. I mean, God in the midst of Daniel's fear sends this angel who brings comfort to him. Jesus did the same thing. I want you to think about when Jesus healed people in the New Testament. There's sometimes when Jesus heals a person from a distance. There's sometimes when Jesus has people there and he doesn't touch them, but multiple times in the scriptures, if you're reading through the Bible in one year, like Bev and I are, and some of you uh, bought that, we had sold over 300 one-year Bibles. I trust you're staying with the program and reading the word of God regularly. And last night was a woman who was healed after Jesus touched her. There's a paralytic that Jesus touches and is healed. There's a blind man who Jesus touches his eyes and he's healed. 
There, there's a woman bent over who Jesus touches and she's healed. There's a leper who perhaps has not been touched for many, many years by anyone. Jesus touches them and heals them. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have to touch people to heal them? Of course not. But in his care, in his comfort, Jesus touches these folks and they're healed. And, and that's one of the ways we can comfort other people. Appropriate touch. I, I just bring that out because it's odd that three times in one chapter, Daniel says, this angel came along and touched me. And I think about the ministry of Jesus and how he often did that and the difference it made in the lives of those people. Well, we look at this and we recognize that there are Daniel, Daniel scared to death because he re- reads about us, hears about a supernatural conflict. What happens in the next verses is that this angel pulls back the curtain and allows Daniel to hear about an invisible war. The, the curtain is pulled back for a second. And this angel says, Daniel, I've got to tell you about something. When you prayed that prayer, I started to come to help you, but I got caught up in a fight with another angel. Michael, the chief of prince, the the angels, had to come to my aid. And that's why you've been mourning 21 days and I haven't been here. And just for a second, the curtain is pulled back on the affairs of earth and Daniel is told about what's happening in the heavenlies. So don't mishear what I'm saying. Think what the scriptures teach us, and I'll point it out in a second in this passage, is that there's a heavenly battle that's going on that's invisible to us that takes place in the heavenlies, and in that, nations are impacted. Nations are impacted. I mean, Gary, that's a strong statement. Well, watch what happens here. Watch what happens. Pick up in verse 12. So he said to me, don't be afraid. Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this vision and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. So Daniel, we heard you when you prayed 21 days ago. That Daniel, God heard your prayer. He sent me as his messenger, as his emissary to come to your aid. But verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for those 21 days. Daniel, I was on my way, but this prince of the king of Persia stopped me. We're in a battle. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, and we know these are angels because we know Michael is an angel. And so he's called a prince here as well as another person. So Michael came to help me for I'd been sent there with the kings of Persia. So there's something that's taking place in heaven that's impacting the kings of Persia on earth. Basically what the scriptures are telling us is that there's this angelic battle taking place that foreshadows and is a counterpart of what's happening on earth. You say, Gary, you really believe that in the 21st century of empirical thought, of, of scientific knowledge, you believe that? Yes, I do. In fact, Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Remember that verse? I'll read it to you. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Your battle is not against those around you. Your battle is against the emissaries and minions of Satan himself. My battle and your battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's an invisible war. So Paul says you put on the armor of God to withstand the strategies of Satan every day. We go back to Daniel. And what Daniel is telling us, if you look at verse 13 carefully, this angel is sent. There's a battle taking place with this angel from Persia, this demon. And he's been left there with the kings of Persia. That is the impact of you don't think, If you don't think that demons... And angels have heavenly battles over nations. Let's pick the demonic side. 
As you know, I'm a student of World War II. I love World War II history. In fact, on this last trip we took, I, I read a book called Boys in the Boat, a great read. It's about the University of Washington rowing team that won the gold medal in the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Great read. I knew nothing about rowing. I will never be a rower. I'm too fat to fit in a sculling boat. <laughs> never going to happen. But if you don't think the demonic exists to control nations, read about Adolf Hitler. If you don't think that happens, read about a guy, read about the Pol Pot regime, read about the Khmer Rouge, read about what happened in Rwanda 22 years ago. Take a look at what happened under Saddam Hussein. Take a look at what happened under Phil Pot. Take a look at what happened under Fidel Castro. Uh, pick a crazy dictator leader, uh, Stalin, Mussolini, uh, the guy in Venezuela right now. Choose your poison. And what this tells us is that there's a scene behind the curtains taking place in the heavenlies, the battle for nations. And that's an amazing thing to think about. And not only that, the battle continues. Look at verse 20. He says, do you understand why I came to you? But I have to return to fight against the prince of Persia. This battle is still ongoing. And so the curtain is partially pulled back for Daniel. And he says, uh, I, I see that this opposition taking place in the heavenlies. And that's why Daniel is scared to death. That's why the fear. He sees this person. And then he finds out about this heavenly battle. And it's absolutely amazing to piece all this together. The defeat of the prince of Persia is preliminary to the defeat of Persia itself. And then the, the leader of Greece, look at the end of verse 20, is about to come on the scene. So when you put all that together, it seems like the struggle that's waged in the heavenlies and won in the heavenlies ultimately takes place on earth as well. It's a precursor. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about. So we think of the sovereignty of God, we think about what happens to us. But really, we should be thinking about what happens in the heavenlies as well, in the grand scale of everything. Well, the rest of the chapter is really the strengthening of Daniel after that. By the way, C.S. Lewis said this, in Scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It is often begins with the words, fear not or don't be afraid. Look at verse 12, do not fear, uh, be afraid. Verse 19, don't be afraid. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about angels these days. And it seems like when people encounter angels today, it's uh, like they're their buddies. I love what uh, this author says. He says, one thing is certain, biblical and contemporary portrayals of angels don't match up. Grocery store tabloids present angels as furies with see-through wings. They exist to do us favors. They're heaven's versions of bottled genies who find us parking places, lost keys, and missing cats. Not sure why you want to find a missing cat anyway, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> Snap your finger and poof, these angels appear. Snap again and the angels vanish. Not quite a biblical image. Two advantages, two adjectives rather, capture the greater truth about angels when you read about them in the scriptures. They are many and they are mighty. Pretty interesting when you read about people who have encountered with angels today, supposedly encounter with angels today. I read a book called Angel on My Shoulder, a chapter in a book called Angel on My Shoulder. It's a guy who says an angel appears to him every morning, sits on his shoulder while he shaves and they have a conversation. And I've got to tell you, I'm the greatest skeptic in the world. I look at that and say, really? Really? That's a far cry from the angel appeared to Mary who starts off by saying, Mary, don't be afraid. And to Joseph, don't be afraid. And to Daniel, don't be afraid. And you pick whenever angels show up, the first of the shepherds, don't be afraid. When angels show up, there's fear and trembling. 
Well, the chapter ends with the strengthening of Daniel. This angel stands before Daniel and uh, look at verse 19. Daniel, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage. Be courageous. Uh, Daniel, I've heard your request. My Lord will strength speak for you. You strengthen me, Daniel says, and he tells him why he came. And next week, we'll take a look at Daniel's vision. Daniel's vision. So, you know, it's noon and we've got 10 minutes to go and I'm not going to stop, right? So he just closed his Bible. Y'all saw me do that. And so some of you have closed yours and saying, so what's he going to do? Well, you know, through, when I look at this chapter and I look at the whole of Daniel and the weeks we've been studying it, we've talked a whole lot about the sovereignty of God. And I really want to hone in on that this morning. I want to hone in on that because we've talked about that time and time and time again and what does that mean and how does it apply to us? First of all, let me give you a biblical definition. Sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his direction or permission. Okay. You see the word reign in sovereignty? That's the concept. God reigns. He reigns over everything. Sovereignty, reigning. If you want to remember it just in a simple way, that's one way to remember it. It's a biblical teaching that everything is under God's rule and control. God is sovereign. And the result of that is nothing happens without his direction or his permission. So how should we respond to the sovereignty of God? Number one, we should respond in worship. When we recognize that we serve a sovereign God, it should cause us to worship the living God. You see, we have a great God who is not a wimpy deity who can be controlled by man. We have a great God who in his sovereignty is not fickle, but he brings about his will. We have a God who will not be bought with our dollars nor be impressed with our works. But we have a God who loves us and cares for us. We do not have a distant deity. You, you have a God who loves and cares for you. Many other religions have a distant deity, one who d- does not allow him to come to his presence. Your God is not that way. He is not distant. He is not unapproachable. In fact, he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And when you hear those things, we should fall on our knees and worship our God. He's a loving, caring, powerful God who deserves our worship. He sovereignly controls the affairs of the world. When's the last time you were quickened in your heart to worship God? All you could do is fall on your face and worship him in a quiet time or maybe singing a song or maybe in his presence in a worship service. Maybe you remember the story I told of Matt Damon. Uh, I've used it a couple of times. Matt Damon is in Chicago filming a movie. He goes into haagen ice cream place to buy ice cream. And uh, there's a lady in line in front of him. When she turns around with the ice cream cone, she is face-to-face, nose-to-nose with Matt Damon. She was like Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. Her knees begin to tremble, and she becomes in awe of the guy standing there. She, she doesn't know what to say. She stutters to tell him hi. She walks out of the ice cream shop. Two or three minutes later, she comes wandering back into the ice cream shop, walks up to the counter. Damon looks at her and says, ma'am, looking for your ice cream cone? And she sheepishly shook her head, yes. He said, you put it in your purse with your change when you walked out. <laughs> now, some of you ladies shouldn't be laughing. You do the same thing if you came face to face with Matt Damon, okay? You weaken your knees. <laughs> When's the last time you felt that way in the presence of God? Last time you've come before him and your heart was quickened and your knees trembled and you fell on your face and all you could do was worship. 
When you understand the sovereignty of God, that he rules and reigns and yet wants us to approach him and has provided for us eternal hope and eternal life, we should worship him. Secondly, we should have hearts filled with gratitude because this great God has provided for us access to him, not just now, but forever through Jesus, his son. How can we not say thanks over and over and over and over? God, you in your infiniteness, you and your greatness, you and your sovereignty still desire to have a relationship with me. It should cause us just to say thanks. Thanks for being not a distant deity, but an approachable deity, a deity of love, a deity of care, a deity who gives life to us. And thirdly, it should cause us to be submission, submissive to him. It should cause us to be submissive to him. You see, for some of us, we have had to learn the hard way that we're not in control of the universe. So, some of us have control issues. I'm gonna raise my hand. I've got control issues, right, babe? And she says amen down there. <laughs> I'm the only one raising my hand at this point in time. Three of us. I'm trying to control you right now. You see how it works? <laughs> it works. But here's the reality, my friends. Some of us need to resign from trying to be the general manager of the universe. See, some of you weighted down with fear and anxiety because you've got the weight of the world upon your shoulders. And you've got a God you can say thanks to and submit to because he's all powerful, almighty, and always in control. And because of that, we don't have to live lives of fear. We have to live lives filled with anxiety. Remember the story of the lady who had a very big decision to make at work that day. She went for a jog through the park. As she's jogging through the park, she saw a beautiful golden retriever frolicking alongside its master. She said, the thought came to my mind to be carefree as that dog, to play and run freely, to knowing that my master will provide for all of my needs. I wish, and she said, I stopped right there. It's as though the spirit of God pierced my heart and God spoke into my heart. Oh, my precious daughter. Do you not know that I am your faithful master? Don't you believe that I care for you more than any earthly master would care for a dog? That you too can run free of worry if you but trust me. Those are some of the most poignant words some of you can hear this morning. Because you've walked in here not believing he's a good master. We've all struggled with that at times. But I'm here to say the God who rules and reigns who's responsible for everything is a good God who deserves our worship, our gratitude, and our submission. And when you do that, you recognize, you recognize that he is more powerful than all. He can accomplish his purposes. Daniel's distressed, he's filled with fear. And God sends an angel to comfort his frightened prophet. So today, you walk in, got a little worry, got a little anxiety, Things aren't right at home. Things aren't right with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, at work. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's money. I don't know what it is. God's grace when he comforts the fearful. Some of you bound up in fear, paralyzed with anxiety. He says, trust me. Eddie Hilson, interesting name, comes out of some of my World War II studies. 
I had not read much about her, didn't know much about her until about five or six years ago. She was a young Jewish girl living in Amsterdam with her parents prior to the outbreak of World War II. They were a Jewish family. As the noose of the Nazis began to tighten around Amsterdam, her family became fearful being a Jewish family. They knew what it meant. They knew that some of their friends had been taken away to something called labor camps. They weren't really sure what that meant. And so they were bound up in fear. One of her friends gave her a Bible that included the New Testament. She was Jewish. She began reading through the Bible and she started in the New Testament. There she met Jesus for the first time. She accepted him as her savior for the forgiveness of her sins. This is a 19-year-old girl writing. She says, from all sides, our destruction creeps in upon us. Soon the ring will be closed and the noose of the Nazis will take us away. But now I feel safe in the arms of my God. I, I don't feel that I have to fear anymore, for I'm safe with him. Whether I'm sitting at my beloved old desk in the Jewish district, or if I'm in a labor camp under the watchful eye of the SS guards, I know I shall be safe in the arms of my God. At age 21, her life was snuffed out in a place called Auschwitz. Her parents both died in Auschwitz. Her younger sister died in Auschwitz. But Eddie Hilsom says, I feel safe in the arms of my God. It's not safe here, it's being safe forever. So I ask you this morning, whatever you've brought into this room, will you lay it at the feet of your Savior? And will you trust him who comforts the frightened? Father, thank you. Thank you that in your sovereignty, in your reigning over us, in your comfort, you, or you comfort us in the midst of that. And Father, for some of us, we have walked in filled with fear, anxiety, worry. We look at Daniel and can recognize our anxiety may not be over an angelic visitation, but it's over the stuff of this world. And so, God, we release to you our fear, our worry, our anxiety, and ask you to be our comforter. And we release those things to you, the sovereign God of the universe, to control, as you always do. We release them from our control, our illusion of control. And, Father, there are some here who don't know Jesus yet. And they should be fearful fearful to drive out of the parking lot, to lose their lives and be cast into a Christless eternity. So for these friends, if you're one of those friends here today, I invite you to make sure that Christ is your Savior. Don't leave this place without being assured of that. Ask Him even right now for the forgiveness of your sin. Father, thank you that you come to Daniel in his time of need and comfort him through your messenger. Thank you for a Savior who comes to us in our time of need and comforts us always. And we pray in his mighty name. Amen. And bless you.